Well, happy Easter. It is great to see everyone on this Sunday morning. I want to invite our children to head back to Transformation Station to uh, enjoy their time down there. And for the rest of you, again, we want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church. We're a fairly new church. We may not necessarily look like a new church, but we are a fairly new church here in Medford. In fact, next Sunday, we'll celebrate our second anniversary service. So it is another great excuse to come and join us again. We'll actually have a free lunch to follow uh, next Sunday. So if, if you are new with us, let me especially welcome you. I know we have uh, several new people here today, and, and we're really glad that you are here. We hope that you find Redemption Hill to be a welcoming and encouraging place. And most of all, beyond that, beyond who we are and what we're about, we really want you to, to encounter God today and to, to get to know Him and, and who He is and, and who He wants us to be with our lives. So we, uh, we do hope that you'll fill out the connection card that, that uh, we place in the seats if you're new, or if you've been around for a while and you have any kind of prayer requests, we want to pray for those uh, throughout uh, this upcoming Week. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you want to use one of the Bibles we provided for you there in the rows, uh, we'll be on page 873, and we will start in Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Luke 14, verse 7. And, and we have been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the mission of Jesus. Well, why did Jesus come? Why did he live the life that he lived? Why did he die the death that he died, and then rose again on the third day as we are celebrating here today. That's what the Gospel of Luke is all about, and that's what we've been studying here at Redemption Hill. So we will be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. And, and, and because Easter Sunday is so early this year, okay, it kind of feels somewhat strange, right, to be March 31st and Easter Sunday. I mean, it's like the snow is still piled up in certain places. Thank the Lord, it's getting warmer. But, um, but you know, because Easter Sunday is, is in March, I felt it appropriate to kind of bring two of my worlds together. You know, obviously as a pastor, this is Easter and a wonderful time to celebrate. But then also, many of you know that I grew up playing basketball and I'm a basketball coach at the high school. And so this is an awesome time to kind of bring these two worlds together, right? Because of March Madness and the NCAA tournament and, and all of this. And so I can remember as a kid, uh, you know, just playing basketball nonstop. I was, I was born with a ball in my crib, you could say, uh, because my dad was a high school coach. He coached for over 30 years in Kentucky, uh, won over 600 games, highly successful, okay, maybe not a Coach K, but somewhere right under that kind of deal. And, uh, and so I loved to play basketball my whole life. Played all growing up, played in high school, was, was pretty decent in high school. Okay, this sermon is going to touch on humility, so just know I say this in kind of humble estimation of myself. We were watching the NCAA tournament last, last couple of nights, like, Marsha, did you see where he shot that from, that three? I used to do, do that, you know? And, uh, and she was like, be, be quiet, I don't believe you. Um, so, um, but but I, I played all through high school, actually earned a college scholarship to play Division II basketball at Kentucky Wesleyan College, and really had a great experience uh, with the game of basketball. But, but I'll tell you that the transition from high school to college was quite drastic. You know, I, 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 again, as a coach's son, I knew what it meant to work hard. I knew what it meant to put in the hours. I knew what to, you know, spend extra time in the gym to be the best player I could possibly be. But I have to tell you that moving from high school to college was a huge step up. I mean, the, the practices were different. The preseason running was different. The competition in practice, you know, now you're not 
the best player on your team, you're actually playing against all Americans in practice and kind of getting beat up and roughed up, you know, as a freshman and a sophomore. And so, you know, what, what I experienced in college was not exactly what I expected as, you know, a player coming up through the ranks. And I wanted to kind of throw that out there because, you know, in life, I think we, we sometimes have expectations of things, and, and then we are surprised when those expectations are, are not quite met the way that we think they are going to be, and our experience doesn't meet our expectations. And, and you know what? I want you to consider this. I think we do this with, with God. I think we do this with Christianity, whether you are brand new, I'm sure there are some people here this morning that are absolutely brand new to Jesus and the Bible, and you, are, you are, don't even really know what to expect of this life that Jesus calls us to live. But, but I want to I challenge all of us here, even if, you've, even if you've been in the church and maybe walking with Christ for many, many years, I think when we read the Gospels and when we dive in deep to what Jesus is about, a lot of times we are surprised because God calls us to a life that we don't necessarily expect. And so this morning I want to talk to you about the priorities and the paradox of Easter. Easter is a time when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there are some paradoxical surprises that God calls us to live out our faith as we learn what it means to follow Jesus. So in Luke 14, verses 7 through the end of the chapter, verse 35, what we are going to see is that Jesus begins to press in on the matter of what it means to truly follow him with our lives. And we're going to find that Jesus died and rose again, that we might respond to his invitation to follow him. Jesus died and rose again, that we might respond to the invitation to follow him. Now, what I want to do is give you four paradoxical truths, encouragements that we find through this chapter that teach us what it looks like to truly follow Christ. We find the first in verses 7 through 11. Jesus is, is do, going about his business, and, and Luke writes, starting in verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited. Okay, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. If we skip back to verse 1 of chapter 14, we would see that he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Okay, so he's dining there at the house, and it says, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And there is our first paradox. Humble yourself to be exalted or 
Exalt yourself now and you will be humbled. Did you see what's going on here? Jesus is at this dinner party at a house of one of the religious leaders of the day and he is kind of people watching, if you will, as people walk into the door. He's, he's making careful observation and he sees that when people walk into the door, they're probably kind of walking in something kind of like this, you know, hey, what's up, rabbi? What's happening? Jesus, you know? And, and they're moving up, like we would probably be prone to do, moving up to the place of honor, which would have been near the host of the party. And Jesus says, wait, you don't need to come in with the strut looking for the VIP seats. You actually need to take the lower place. And why is that? Well, you don't know who's coming to the party. And there may be someone that is a little more distinguished, a little more special than you, that is invited to move up and take your place. Now, I know this is hard for you to imagine because you, you all are so cool and you're so beautiful and good-looking and, you know, popular and this and that, but, but this, is, this is conceivable, right? And, and in, in the culture of, of ancient Israel, it would have been a horrific experience to be asked to move from the higher seat to a lower place. It would have been completely embarrassing and humiliating. One scholar said that this experience would have been almost worse than death. Why? Because this was an honor and shame culture, unlike ours. And so Jesus says, look, if, if, if you want to... to, to to really get what my kingdom is about and how you should relate to others, then you, you, need to take, you need to start by taking the lowest seat. And then perhaps you will be moved up to a higher place. Now, who of us can say we would go into the situation and say, you know what, I don't have to have that seat. I don't have to have the recognition. I don't have to have the applause of others. Look at how great and important they are. You know what? I want to prioritize others by placing them above myself. Jesus says, look, if, if you get this heart attitude that is reflected in your relationships with others, but ultimately it reflects probably what our attitude is like before God, he says, you are very near the kingdom of God. Because as we saw in verse 11, the key verse, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is it that would help us to have a more humble view, to practice humility in greater ways? Well, just, you might wanna write these down. Number one, it starts with a proper view of self. To say, you know what, we don't have it all together. We're, we're, we don't, you know, uh, have, you know, all of, all of life's, you know, game plan un, unfolded and perfected. And so I, I have a lot to learn in life and, and I need the help of others. So, so number one, a proper view of self. Number two, most importantly, a proper view of God. I have a huge vision of who God is with our lives. What will teach us that, that, that we need a lot of humility in our lives. And then, and then number three, a proper view of, of God's gifts. And in other words, everything that we have in life is a gift from God. What do we have that we have not received as a gift from him? And so all of these, all of these, a proper view of self, a proper view of God, a proper view of his gifts, all promote 
more and more humility in our lives. And this should not surprise us, by the way. It should not surprise us that Jesus calls us to humility. And why is that? Well, this is the essence of the gospel. God the Son humbled himself, took on human form, and not only that, but he lived a perfect life and died a cruel death on our behalf. This is what Philippians 2 says, starting in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of the servant and being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So humility is prerequisite to understanding what it means to have a seat, a position, a place at the table of the kingdom of God. Then in verse 12, Jesus turns his attention from the guest to the host himself. And we pick that up there in verses 12 through 14. Look at, look at what it says. It says, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here's our second paradox this morning. Extend mercy to the poor and you will become rich. Extend mercy to the poor and you will become rich. Now, let's be honest here. This cuts against our every inclination, right? We like to have people over that we are very familiar with, that we are very comfortable with. And, and even beyond that, sometimes, if we're being honest, we love to have people over who can sometimes maybe, you know, provide that reciprocal benefit kind of thing. I'll have you over if you have me back over, you know, next week, or, you know, I'll take you out to eat and spend my hard-earned money so that, you know, you're probably going to take me out maybe even to a nicer place, you know, the next month. And so we just kind of do this naturally, and Jesus understands this. And he says to the host, hey, you want to learn a little bit more about the kingdom of God? I'll teach you a little bit more about the kingdom of God. God is, is like this. He invites those who you would not expect. He extends mercy and generosity to those whom you would probably never invite. Why? Because they cannot pay you back in return. So he's saying that, that in our generosity toward others, we should practice 
hospitality and generosity, not based on any kind of social categories or, or kind of relational benefits, but that we should extend generosity and hospitality to all. And why is this? Well, once again, it is because this is the clearest display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, well, what has God done with us? God has extended radical generosity to those who could never pay him back. So many times we, we conceive of salvation as, hey, I'll do this and I won't do that. And perhaps one day when I stand before God, God will accept me on the basis of what I have done and what I haven't done. That is what we call salvation by our own works, our own merit, which is no salvation at all. Why? Because we can never be good enough. So that's the whole concept of grace, that God gives us what we do not deserve, and it is an absolute free gift. Romans 11 speaks to this. It says, uh, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all, all things. So, so we, we can never give a gift to God and expect a, a repayment as if, as if God is, is, would, would be then in our debt. No, we, we accept the gift that he offers and he says, you reflect my character, and in your work, you reflect my works by extending generosity and hospitality to all. And here's the good news. When we do this, we actually will be rewarded richly, and that's where verse 14 comes into play. It says, and you will be blessed because they cannot re repay you, but, oh, by the way, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so Jesus says, there will be, let's wrap our minds around this, there will be a resurrection. There will be a time when all of us, every human being on the planet will be raised to live an eternal afterlife. And we will all give an account of our lives before God. And, and, and God says, look, if, if you are righteous and just in me because I've given you my righteousness, then, then you will stand before me and, and all that you did to glorify me with your life, you will be rewarded richly for that. So this is what makes Easter so powerful, so relevant for us, is that the resurrection of Christ guarantees our own resurrection. This is a huge, sweeping claim to be considered. Have we been made simply for this life, simply to, you know, kind of live a, a decent life, get a job, maybe raise a family, maybe not, but, but work really hard and, 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 and just make a contribution, or is there something more to this life than, than what meets the eye? It's actually one of the, the, the kind of polemics or arguments that I, that I like to just ask people who don't believe in God just to say, you know what, hey, do, do you think that this life is really as good as it gets? Have you thought about that? Is this author, is, is this as good at it, as it gets? Because here's the beautiful part of Christianity. Not only does Christ's resurrection guarantee our resurrection, but the resurrection of Christ 
guarantees that he will not only come back for us, but he will also restore all things to their original created intent. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you the the whole Bible in like 15 seconds, okay? God created the world good and everything was perfect. We, man, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and the sin entered the world, death entered the world, the fall entered the world, and it has affected everything comprehensively. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, all tragic events and, and natural disasters. We, how do we make sense of it all? Well, we live in a fallen world. Jesus says in this world you have trouble. So, so this good world that God has made has been flipped upside down because of sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So God sends Jesus to be the Savior, the Deliverer, to redeem us from our sinful state, that we might be reconciled to God. And then one day when Jesus returns, he will restore and redeem all things back to the way that God intended. It says that, that God will make all things new when he comes back. So perhaps this is what you need to hear more than anything this morning is is you're just looking for some hope. Man, Tanner, it has been a rough time in my life. I have family members who are sick. I can't find a job. I don't know how we're going to put food on the table. And there is hope in Christ because Christ is the resurrection and the life. Christ is our hope. The resurrection guarantees all of this, our resurrection, the restoration of all things, but it's not just for the afterlife and the next life, but it's also for this life. You see, the resurrection of Christ gives us a power to live the life that God wants us to live comprehensively. This is what Paul prays in Ephesians 1. Hey, God, would you please open their eyes to see the hope their inheritance and the power that is at work in them, which is the same power that was at work when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him above all rulers and authorities. Can you believe this? This was last Easter sermon, by the way, if you want to go listen to it. I mean, Christ has given us power for everything we need to live our life for him. It is an amazing gift that he gives us. And not only this, but the resurrection. This is the the confession, the central confession of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Great great verses to know on this Easter season. For I deliver to you as of first importance. What is above everything, Paul? What is the most important thing for a person to know? This is the most important thing. Of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Now, how does Paul finish this chapter after he's given all of these arguments for the resurrection? He said, hey, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith, faith is fuel. You shouldn't be standing up right now preaching Tanner if this is all you know, a, a joke. And, and, and so how does he end the chapter there? Well, in the very last verse, verse 58, he says, therefore, okay, because Christ has victory over sin, Satan, and death, He says, therefore, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because your work in the Lord will not be in vain. Every good thing that we do in the name of Christ, every good work that we engage in, we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. So every good thing that we do matters to God. 
has eternal significance. If we live our life according to God's intention, God says, you know what? It's gonna count. It's a way to live your life and not waste your life. Live it for God and know that it's going to count. And all of this is guaranteed and emphasized because Jesus Christ not only died and was buried, but Jesus Christ was raised. Do you know the power of the resurrection of Christ? Have you received this gift of Jesus Christ dying for your sin and being raised, not just so that you can have eternal life one day, but you can have an abundant life right now? This comment here about the resurrection of the just raises the statement that we find in verse 15. Look at it. It says, when one of those, picture the scene again, they're reclining at table, hanging out with Jesus, eating with Jesus. And it says, when one of those heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So this brings us to our third paradox that we'll see as we move through this next parable. And that is this, come like a pauper and you will feast like a king. Come like a pauper and you will feast like a king. You see, this banquet imagery and this mention of the resurrection of the just provokes one of the, of the, the, the leaders there to say, you know what, blesses everyone who is going to eat in the kingdom of God. And oh, by the way, I love this because this kind of obliterates another misconception about Christianity, okay? I love to talk about this. Most people think that Christianity, the church, is just about, you know, a set of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, and that at the end of the day, like God is trying to put this cosmic straitjacket on us to keep us from having an enjoyable and, you know, fun life, abundant life. This is people's picture of Christianity, Right? Man, why get caught up in that? Because you can't have any fun. You can't, you know, enjoy life because you, well, the resurrection teaches us that Christ invites us not to a funeral, but a feast. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. These are the words of Christ. He invites us to have abundant life in him and to come and to dine at the table of his kingdom and to feast. Now, verse 16, Jesus wants to make sure that they get the picture of what the kingdom is really going to look like because here's, here's what's going on. These are religious leaders. They think that their ticket is already punched to sit at the table and Jesus says, hold on, not so fast. Let's make sure you really get what my kingdom is about. And so verse 16, Jesus responds and says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So just insert yourself and know that, that God invites all of us to feast with him in his kingdom. And I hope you'll receive that as a personal invitation today. But then verse 17 says, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready. This was the customary practice of the day. Original invitations had gone out. All of those who said, hey, yeah, I'll be there. Get this nice little reminder. Hey, now everything is ready. Come to the feast. But then in verse 18, the narrative takes a harsh turn as excuses begin to pile in. Look at verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and then bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So, so what's going on here? The, the master has sent out an invitation for people to come. And though there are three different excuses that are given, hey, I bought a field, I bought these ox, I just got married, okay, some seem kind of more important and weighty than others. The reality is they had all accepted the invitation, number one. None of these chores or tasks should have disrupted their uh, ability to get to the invitation, but the common thread running through all three is that ultimately these things were more important, more valuable than actually coming and attending the feast. Now, I know that we're all familiar with excuses, right? We, we all give excuses from time to time, right? What is an excuse? It's an illegitimate reason to not do something, participate in something, right? And it's one thing when, when we're, we're kind of giving an excuse, but it's another thing to receive an excuse. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think back to when I was in high school, and uh, I was a, a sophomore, and there was this kind of cute girl, okay, that, that was, you know, it was thinking, you know, she probably has this reciprocal view of me, kind of cool, cute, and everything. And so, so, so I, I called her. I was like, hey, would you like to come and hang out with my friends? And, and she said, uh, well, I have to clean my room. <laughs> clean your room? I'm mean, like, c- c- come on. Like, you could just, like, vacuum and laundry and on a Friday night? Like, what, what, what is that? That's an excuse, right? So listen, if, if you've been there, okay, if you've been rejected, okay, keep your head up, all right? I'm so thankful she said, she said that she had to clean her room, okay, because 17 years later, I'm in a much better boat, okay, believe me, Marsha. Um, so, so, um, so have you ever been on the receiving end of a, of a horrible excuse? You know, it's one thing if these are human relationships and kind of lame excuses at this level, but, but what happens when this invitation is from the God of the universe who loves us, made us, wants to have a vital relationship with us, and we would say, you know what, God, I, I have this to attend to. This is kind of really important right now. Maybe I'll get to you next month, next year, sometime in the future. And this is what we do with God. But what I love about God is that a few excuses do not stop his heart to host the feast. And so he says, look, if you won't come, then I will send out a set of new invitations, and this time I will send them to people who would be delighted to come. I will send out invitations to the most exquisite feast that you can imagine and the invitations this time will go to the crippled the poor the blind and the lame so do you see the paradox of the feast 
These religious leaders thought they would be the first in line to partake of the kingdom of God and sit at his table. And Jesus is saying, look, if you think you have it all together and you lack humility and you're not willing to give and to serve others and reflect the heart of God, then you probably are not first in line for the kingdom, but you're probably gonna be on the outside looking in while the spiritually poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame go walking by you and rush into the table of the kingdom of God. God's heart is revealed in this. The servant comes back and he says, look, we've done what you've commanded. We've gone through all the streets of the city and the alleys and we've brought these people in, but there's still room. So what do you want us to do now? He says, well, you go outside of the city, verse 23, and you go out into the highways and the hedges and you compel people to come in that my house may be full. God says, you go everywhere and you invite all of them to come and you don't only invite them, but you compel them to come in and to dine at my feast so that my house might be full. So I hope that you have received this invitation to dine at the table of God. And I hope that you have been compelled to come in. And let me just say that the, the, the most compelling reality in the world that I know is the reality of love. Love is what moves the heart of God to open his arms and extend this invitation. And I know we've all experienced love to one degree on some human level, but listen, none of us have experienced the kind of love that God desires to give to people. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3. He says, you know, I want you to know the height and the width and the length and the depth of the incomprehensible love of God. He's like, comprehend the incomprehensible. We can't even wrap our minds around it. But yet God loves us so much that he would send his son. This is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, the invitation is for all, whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. But God shows his love in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever been loved like this? You see, it's, it's one thing to, to, you know, like for example, this morning. I just met some of you this morning and, and I hope, you know, there's a decent kind of first impression. You would walk away, say, you know what, Redemption Hill, you know, that Pastor Tanner or whatever his name was, you know, he's a pretty nice guy, you know? But, 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 but it's a whole different thing if you've been coming here for two years and you would say that about me. Hey, Tanner is legit. He really loves people. He really you know, cares about people. He, he does display God's kindness and his love. But, but you know what? It's a whole different thing if, if Marcia says that about me. Because she's with me every single day. Seven years. We're, we're together. And she knows. Why is this more significant? Because she knows me. She knows my flaws. She, she knows where I don't measure up. And God knows us all infinitely better than any other person in the world, and yet he still loves us. <laughs> it's amazing. 
It's amazing that God, in spite of our flaws, would send Christ to die a cruel death in our place that we might receive his love. The people that came were poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And this is how we must come to God if we want to receive his gift. With humility, knowing that we have nothing to bring to the table except our sin. But God loves us in spite of that. If we would acknowledge that and turn back to him and come and receive his invitation, we can accept his love and experience a brand new life in Christ. So the question for us is not whether or not the feast will take place. The question is, will we accept the invitation to come? Which brings us to the fourth and final paradox here in Luke 14 because it's, it's as if Luke has then placed what follows here to say, hey, this is what it looks like to make a decision to accept the invitation, to decide to come. And we find it in verses 25 and following. Let me read the first few verses. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, here's where we're going with this. The, The fourth paradox, and perhaps the most drastic paradox of all, is that God calls us to hate in order to love and to die in order to live. If you want to come to the feast of God, you need to understand that the the gift is free. There is absolutely no price to be admitted to come. But once you really see it, once you really get what it means to follow Christ, then you would be willing to do anything to live your life for him. And so there are three commitments that really fly in the face of casual Christianity. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, I'll I'll read my Bible occasionally. I'll say a few prayers and, you know, I'll try to be a good person, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, that's it. And and listen, there is is no such thing as casual Christianity in the Bible. There's just Christianity. There's just, there's just discipleship. There's just this Jesus who is king who calls us to follow him. And he's saying, look, if you want to follow me and be in with me, then, then, then to know this and experience my love is to really be willing to give it all away. And so there are three costly commitments of a disciple of Christ that, that, that we are willing to make every single day if we really have received this invitation. Number one, there is a commitment to hate in order to love. We just read these verses, and this sounds so strange, so foreign to our ears, even so contradictory to the Bible. Jesus, what do you mean? Hate your brother, hate your mother, hate your father, hate your wife, hate your children, even hate your own life? Jesus, what are you saying? And when Jesus uses this language here, at times in the Bible, the word hate is used to mean love less. So so what Jesus is saying is, is that your love for me would be so great that in comparison, everything else would appear to be hate. He is calling us to that radical type of commitment, that supreme kind of love to say, you are so worthy that I would love everything, 
every other relationship more than I love them. So let me ask you, is there anything that stands in your way of true discipleship? Do you you love anything more than Christ? Perhaps it's another human relationship. Perhaps it's your work. Okay, I know we work hard here in greater Boston. We're very ambitious people. We love our jobs. We love others. Is it work? Maybe it's just the pursuit of pleasure and a, and a hobby that you have. And you, you would say, you know what? That's more valuable. That's more important than my relationship with God. Jesus says, look, if you really want to be in with me, you will hate everything else in comparison to the love that you would have for me. Number two, we need to die in order to live. Verse 27, it says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he has able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So so in verse 27, Jesus says this graphic picture, and this is so good for us to to reflect on during this season of, of Good Friday and Easter. He says, if you are not willing to bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, he's saying, if you are not willing to lay down your life and sacrifice whatever it is that stands in your way of loving me and obeying me, then you cannot be my disciple. So so to carry your own cross and to die to yourself every day may mean that, that, that you have to change the way that you talk. Your language and, and how not just, you know, certain words that you say, but how you, how you encourage others, how you build others up, maybe that's what needs to die. Maybe, maybe your plans and dreams, God, I really want this, and if this is not what, you know, lines up with your will, then I'm going after this anyway. Maybe it's just comfort and, and, and peace. That, that you would say, you know what, and God wants us to, to have peace, right? But, but to be so comfortable and to chase after comfort and not being willing to make sacrifices to, 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 to follow Christ. Jesus says, whatever it is in your life that needs to die, you need to, to, to bear the cross of Christ and to die to yourself. Because here's the beautiful thing. When you are willing to die, that is when you find life in him. which takes us to the third commitment that is found in verse 33, which kind of sums it all up. Give up everything to gain it all. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, this is a call that Christ would have absolutely no competitors in our lives, that he has the ultimate priority over everything. And the amazing part of this deal is that the cost is infinitely small in comparison to the enormity of the reward. I love what missionary Jim Elliott said, who actually died a martyr's death in Ecuador back in the 1950s. He wrote in his journal sometime before his death, he said, he is no fool 
who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And this is why Jesus in the Gospels says, if you want to follow me, then you'll be willing to give up everything. You can gain the whole world and yet you can forfeit your very soul. And so Jesus says, look, if you are willing to give it off up for me, to lay it all down, to die to yourself, to hate everything else in comparison to loving me and serving me and worshiping me with your life, then he says, the reward is infinitely great. And you will have it all by having Christ. This is what it means by answering the cost of discipleship. Verse 34 just kind of reinforces this. It says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is, no use, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, look, if, if you do not get this cost of discipleship, if you do not respond in this kind of way, then you will really not be effective and of use in my kingdom, but you will think you have something that you probably really don't even possess. So let me ask you on this Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the crucifixion of Christ, that Jesus opened his arms, was nailed to a Roman cross so that all who look to him can receive this invitation to have his righteousness. Christ bore our sin so that we might have his righteousness. Have you received that gift? And if so, do you know what the power of the resurrection looks like in your own personal life? Because I can tell you, God wants you to have this kind of life kind of life that is so paradoxical and yet so abundant and fulfilling because this is the life that God intended for us to live in the very beginning. It is the full and forever life that he gives. So let's bow our heads and pray. And I hope that you will count the cost this morning the cost to follow Jesus Christ. Listen, it, maybe you come in and you've kind of been really seeing that, that for all intents and purposes, spiritually speaking, you've been, you've been blind. You've been, you've been lame. You've been crippled. And you need to come to, to God just as you are and say, God, you know what? I now see my need for you. I see the invitation that, that you have given me and I want to embrace it and receive it and sit at your table. Look, if, if that's you for the first time and you would just say, I, I wanna follow Christ, then all you need to do is express that to God and say, God, I accept your invitation to dine at your table. And for those of us who maybe been in Christ for years, Lord, we pray that, that you would uh, help us to, to receive the invitation every single day to follow Christ, to, to live our lives for Christ, to give up everything that we might have you. Because God, you promised that when we're willing to do that, that's when all of life makes sense anyway. That's when our marriages really work and thrive. That's when our, our job really works and thrives, our, our parenting, our friendships, our hobbies even. 
When we seek you first, you say you'll take care of everything else. And so God, help us to seek you first. Help us to live in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.